When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old... Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply, so I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he'll progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Leslie Y., who made a wonderful donation to the podcast. I really appreciate it, and right now all donations and Patreon goes to helping my dog get his surgery that he needs. Every year is an important year in the history of Canada, but some are more important than others. 
Perhaps there is an important invention that is made in a given year, or an iconic institution is created, or there is a notable birth. For Canada, 1874 is a year with all of those things. This is going to be a long episode, folks. On January 15th, James David Stewart is born in Prince Edward Island. He would go on to become the leader of the Conservative Party of Prince Edward Island from 1921 to 1933. During that time, he would serve as the Premier of the province from 1923 to 1927 and 1931 to 1933. On January 16th, Robert Service is born in England. He would go on to become the bard of the Yukon for his poetry. His poems, The Shooting of Dan McGrew and The Cremation of Sam McGee, were inspired by the Klondike Gold Rush, which he saw firsthand after he was sent to the territory by the bank he worked for. Today, several schools are named for him, and his poems have been recorded by artists including Hank Snow. On January 22nd, Canada headed into another election. In 1873, as we saw in the last episode, the Conservative government fell and Sir John Macdonald would resign as Prime Minister amid the Pacific Scandal. This would bring in the Liberals to power for the first time, and in the subsequent 1874 election, the first to be held on a single day, January 22nd, they would retain and hold that power. The House of Commons once again saw its seat count increase, this time by six seats to 206. Prince Edward Island also joined Canada by this point as well. The biggest change to come from this election was the use of secret ballots, which was implemented to prevent parties from influencing voters to vote one way or another. Even with the decision to implement secret ballots, there was still opposition to it. Antoine Dornier, a Liberal MP, would say of that opposition, quote, Those opposed are afraid that if the ballot was adopted, they might not be sure of getting the votes after having bought them, end quote. The Liberals would pick up 34 seats, finishing with 129 seats. They were led officially this time by Alexander Mackenzie, who was the second Prime Minister of Canada. Sir John A. Macdonald and the Conservatives suffered a total collapse, losing 35 seats and becoming the official opposition. There were also 12 independents, many of which were from the Conservatives and had left the party after the scandal. Across the country, the Liberals tended to win in each province, with Ontario being the biggest win. The Liberals picked up 61 seats, while the Conservatives only had 25. It was closer in Quebec, with the Liberals having 34 seats to the 29 of the Conservatives. The new province of Prince Edward Island was overwhelmingly Liberal, as the party picked up five of six seats on the island province. Many consider the 1874 election to be one of the most corrupt in Canadian history. Of the 206 MPs elected, 65 had their seats contested on grounds of corruption. This may seem like it was just sour grapes for those who lost, but in fact, only two petitions were dismissed and only 14 members were confirmed in their seats. A total of 30 Liberals and 19 Conservatives were unseated. One interesting point about this election is that it was the first election win for Wilfrid Laurier, who would go on to serve for 45 years in Parliament, longer than anyone else, and as Prime Minister from 1896 to 1911. On February 8th, Joseph Bruno Gugois passed away. He was the first bishop of the Diocese of Bytown. During his life, it was said he was a simple man, and as bishop, he would hear confession in his cathedral and visit the sick. He served as the bishop of Bytown, now Ottawa, from 1847 until his death. On February 11th, George Wacom became Premier of British Columbia. He would serve for two years until 1876 before coming back as Premier in 1878 and serving until 1882. On March 9th, Joseph Cassavant passed away at the age of 67. 
He was a noted pipe organ manufacturer who would build 17 organs that would be used in Catholic churches throughout Canada, including in Ottawa. Successful blacksmith giving all this up? When you want to study. Can you really do it? You're studying with Father Ducham, and you're still a blacksmith. This, of course, is not a rich parish. I can't pay you that much. Well, we'll work it out. I think we should... Father, it's ready. Call it the Marching Thunder. Over time, Casavant's sons would take up the craft of their father, their organs in demand from Montreal to Paris, from Cairo to Tokyo. Joseph Casavant, one of Canada's first entrepreneurs. On April 16th, Louis Rial, who had been elected to the House of Commons despite being in exile after the Red River resistance, was barred from taking his seat in Ottawa. Wilfrid Laurier, the future Prime Minister of Canada, would speak on behalf of Riel and against his expulsion from the House of Commons. He would say in his speech, quote, It has been said that Mr. Riel was only a rebel. How was it possible to use such language? What active rebellion did he commit? Did he ever raise any other standard than the national flag? Did he ever proclaim any other authority than the sovereign authority of the Queen? No, never. His whole crime and the crime of his friends was that they wanted to be treated like British subjects and not be bartered away like common cattle. If that be an act of rebellion, where is the one amongst us who, if he had happened to have been with them, would not have been rebels as they were? Quote. The New Brunswick provincial election was held in June and July, but there was no party labels at the time. In the election, the issue of the Common Schools Act was the main topic among candidates. Roman Catholics and Acadians were opposed to the legislation since it banned religious instruction in public schools. A total of 35 candidates supported the government, five were in opposition, and one was neutral. George Edwin King would serve as Premier from 1872 to 1878. And on June 16th, the first of two Prime Ministers would be born, Arthur Meehan. The other is William Lyne Mackenzie King, and the hilarious thing about this is that these two men, who essentially knew each other through most of their lives, hated each other with a passion. I will get more into that later. And if you want to learn more about Arthur Meehan and William Lyne Mackenzie King, then check out my episodes about them on my other podcast, From John to Justin. Meehan would attend primary school in Anderson, Ontario, and high school at North Ward Public School. He excelled in school, earning first-class honors in mathematics, English, and Latin. He also excelled at debating with the School Debating Society. In 1908, at the age of 34, he was elected to the House of Commons, defeating John Crawford in Portage Prairie, where Crawford had represented for four years. This was especially impressive as Crawford was seen as a lock to win, riding on the coattails of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, who was still very popular in the country. In the end, Meehan won by 250 votes. At the time, the Conservative Party was still in the opposition, and Sir Wilfrid Laurier and the Liberals led Canada. Meehan spent most of his time on the back bench and only made two speeches in his first term, but they were enough to catch the notice of Conservative leader Robert Borden. In 1911, Meehan was elected by a margin of 675 votes, and this time he was part of the governing party under new Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden. When the Laurier opposition held up the government's naval aid bill, Borden turned to Meehan to find a solution. 
mean would urge the adoption of a form of closure that was used in the British Parliament, and it was a way to implement the bill in the House of Commons without sparking a debate. Borden introduced the motion for closure on April 9, 1913, with the Liberals fighting it, but they were unable to, and it was passed two weeks later, only to be defeated in the Liberal-controlled Senate. Meehan's solution greatly impressed Borden, and on June 26, Meehan was the new Solicitor General. For the next four years, Meehan served in that position until he was made the Minister of Mines and the Secretary of State in 1917. Borden, becoming more impressed with Meehan, assigned him with negotiating a financial agreement with the Canadian Northern Railway, which was about to go bankrupt and would have brought down a large bank and several provincial governments with it. Meehan would come up with a proposal that would provide a $45 million government guarantee on Canadian Northern bonds in return for a mortgage and a large share of common stock. The bill would pass and become law, and Borden rewarded Meehan with an elevation to another cabinet rank. The next task for Meehan would come in 1919 with the Winnipeg General Strike. At the time, he was the acting Minister of Justice and the senior member from Manitoba in the government of Borden. Meehan considered the strikers to be revolutionists, and he would approve the arrests of strike leaders and urge all foreign-born among the leaders to be deported. Once the strike had ended with force, Meehan enacted Section 98 amendments to the Criminal Code, which banned associations with organizations deemed seditious. By this point, the Conservative Party was widely disliked by unionists and laborists, farmers angry about tariffs, and nearly everybody in Quebec because of the conscription crisis. It was in this new atmosphere that Meehan found himself in a new role. In 1920, Meehan would see himself become the leader of Canada after the retirement of Sir Robert Borden. Meehan's first term as Prime Minister would last only a year and a half before the 1921 election, which he would lose. As the leader of the opposition, Meehan was often at odds with Prime Minister William Lyne Mackenzie King. Borden and Laurier had a good relationship and a mutual respect for each other. Laurier even ensured a Liberal candidate did not run in a by-election after Borden lost his seat, allowing Borden to be acclaimed. That sort of relationship was not seen at all with Meehan and King. Both men had a distrust to each other, with Meehan often looking down upon King and calling him Rex, which was the nickname of King at university, which he hated. King saw Meehan as a high Tory who would destroy the social peace of the country. The rivalry and dislike between these two men is nearly unrivaled in Canadian history, and I encourage you to check out my episodes about the two men, especially Meehan, to learn more about it. When the 1925 election came along, Meehan and the Tories won 115 seats, an increase of 66, while King won 100, dropping 18. The Progressive Party collapsed, losing 36 seats, and the Liberals, having fewer seats than the Conservatives, looked to the Progressives for help as a coalition, giving them just enough seats and the ability to retain the confidence in the House of Commons as the already sitting Prime Minister. Meehan was naturally livid over this and called King's holding of office to be like a lobster with lockjaw. Governor-General Bing felt that the Liberal-Progressive alliance was a corrupt bargain, and he felt that the Conservatives should have formed the next government, but there was no valid legal grounds for refusing to allow King to remain as Prime Minister. Soon after the election, the Customs Department was beset in a scandal, and with a vote coming in the House of Commons that King thought he would lose, he asked Lord Bing to dissolve the government and call an election. With the previous election being so close, the Governor-General felt that there was too short of a time between the election, and also looking at the fact that Meehan had a larger seat count, he refused their request. The incident became known as the King-Bing Affair, and many debate who was in the right, King or Bing in that matter. In response, King resigned as Prime Minister, leaving Canada without a government, and with the support of the Progressives, Meehan was asked to form a government by Lord Bing. 
I talk all about the King Bing affair in my episode about Lord Bing on my podcast, From John to Justin. Mean was then advised by Bing to appoint ministers of the crown in an acting capacity only, which would not trigger automatic by-elections which the ministers faced in accepting their appointments. The progressives then shifted their support to King at this point, and the government lost a vote regarding the ministers by one vote, and Mean was forced to call an election. In the election held on September 14, 1926, the Liberals cruised to 116 seats, while Meehan saw his party fall by 24 seats to 91. Meehan even lost his own seat. Meehan and the Conservatives didn't win the popular vote by 100,000 votes, but that did not matter in the election. In all, Meehan's second time as Prime Minister lasted only three months. With the election and riding loss, Meehan resigned as Conservative Party leader on October 11, 1926. From 1931 to 1934, he would serve as a member of the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario. In 1932, Conservative Prime Minister R.B. Bennett appointed Meehan to the Canadian Senate, where he served as leader of the government in the Senate and the minister without a portfolio from 1932 to 1935. From 1935 to 1942, he served as the leader of the opposition in the Senate. And he would die of heart failure on August 5, 1960. While the Imperial Conference was a great moment in Meehan's career, it was in domestic rather than international affairs that he chiefly made his mark, and especially as the greatest House of Commons man of his day, according to some, the greatest in our history. One of his admirers from the vantage point of the press gallery was Grant Dexter, correspondent for the liberal Winnipeg Free Press. Meehan in an outstanding way, was the greatest parliamentarian I've ever watched and listened to. Uh, he was uh, far and away beyond King. King had his moments, but Meehan was always great, and he was always great because not only was he easily the most eloquent man I have ever listened to, but because he had this, this tremendous capacity to completely master any subject that he addressed his mind to, and however complicated it might be, he had the ability to present it, the ability to present it uh, in the House of Commons in the most simple, lucid, unchallengeable, on get-aroundable fashion. Another who watched Meehan in action in the Commons was Eugene Forsey. Dr. Forsey enumerates the qualities that made Meehan preeminent in the House. First, an intellect crystal clear. That was why, as one old friend said of him, he never spattered the target. Second, a memory second only to Macaulay's if that, comparable only to Macaulay's. When he was well over 80 and complaining uh, that he couldn't remember things as he used to, he quoted to me word for word and without an instant's hesitation a long passage from Laurier's tribute to Alexander Mackenzie in the House of Commons in 1892. Third, he had an unsurpassed capacity for hard work. He never spoke without having mastered his subject. Fourth, the product of these three, he had a, an encyclopedic and exact knowledge of the myriad subjects which Parliament had to deal with. Fifth, 
He had a mastery of the English language equaled only, perhaps, in our time by Sir Winston Churchill. With these endowments, naturally, he had no need of ghostwriter or manuscript, those twin curses of contemporary public speaking. On June 19th, the Northwest Mounted Police was assembled together for the first time as a single unit at Fort Dufferin. The following day, they would experience a vicious storm that may have been a sign of things to come. The storm was described by Sam Steele as such, quote, A thunderbolt fell in the midst of the horses. Terrified, they broke their fastening and made for the corral. The six men on guard were trampled underfoot as they tried to stop them. The maddened beasts overturned the huge wagons, dashed through a row of tents, scattered everything, and made for the gate of the large field in which they were encamped, end quote. Over the subsequent weeks, final preparations would be made to prepare for the March West. And I'm going to relate to you this terrible, terrible March West. On July 8, 1874, the new Northwest Mounted Police left Fort Dufferin, located near Emerson, Manitoba. The force of the time was 275 strong, divided into six divisions. In addition, there were 310 horses, 143 oxen, and 187 carts and wagons. In all, the force stretched for 2.4 kilometers as it marched. Beyond those items, there was also two field guns and two mortars, cattle, and mowing machines to make hay. George French, the first commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police, had Henri Julien, a journalist with Canadian Illustrated News, come with the new force to write about it in what he hoped would be a positive light. One interesting recruit was Inspector Francis Dickens, the son of Charles Dickens, who was described by his superiors as, quote, a very poor officer of no promise, physically weak in constitution, his habits not affording a good example, end quote. There were many applicants to be part of this first force moving west, but mostly men with previous military or police experience were hired. Applicants could be any male between the age of 18 and 40 with good character and strong constitution. They had to be able to read and write in either French or English, and they would be paid 75 cents a day to be a sub-constable or $1 a day for a constable. Things did not begin well for the force. With so many moving pieces and through arduous conditions, the force made only 15 miles a day, and that was on a good day. On the fourth day of the march, the troops rested at a place called Grant's Place, where they killed several ducks and feasted on them. This would have consequences soon after for those men, beyond the fact they killed several ducks without approval. The men who enjoyed those ducks and drank the pond water soon found themselves literally soiling themselves on the march. On the fifth day of the march, the troops were able to camp at the base of the Pembina Mountains. During the evening, swarms of grasshoppers descended on the canvas tents of the men, forcing them to pack up their tents to save their only shelter from hungry grasshoppers. On July 19th, the twelfth day of the march, the men rested in order to observe the Sabbath. Resting along the river, the men had their first opportunity to bathe and wash their clothes that they had soiled many days earlier. On July 22nd, the 15th day of the march, the first of the horses began to die. The force was crossing a river, but due to the heat of the day and the weak condition of the horses, two were abandoned and two others died. The weak condition of the horses was because of the small supply of oats the horses were provided. Within three weeks, A Division was in serious disrepair and men were suffering from dysentery. As a result, on July 29th, several members of the division were left behind as the main force turned off the southerly trail and began the march across the drier and rougher plains of the northwest area. On August 1st, the 25th day of the expedition, the bad luck of its members was in full force. Henri Julien, the aforementioned journalist, went off to hunt ducks. 
After dismounting to get a ducky shot, his horse rode off and Julien would spend hours chasing after her on foot. Finally catching the horse, he returned to camp to find the force had left. He was forced to tether his horse and sleep under the stars for the night. The following day, a search party found him, whose hands and feet were ragged and bloody and his face had nearly been disfigured by mosquito bites. Over the course of the next two weeks, things would be relatively okay. The troop would come across the Sioux, who were happy to trade and spend time with the force. Various groups had gone out and picked up some supplies, although not enough to keep the force from being on a razor's edge of despair at points. On August 24th, the force reached Cypress Hills, which is now on the border of the present-day Alberta and Saskatchewan. Poor planning would result in another terrible mix-up for the group. Commissioner French thought that the Fort Whoop-Up was at the junction of the Bow River and South Saskatchewan River. When the group arrived on September 10th, they soon found nothing in the area, except for three old shacks. Commissioner French then abandoned the plan to move towards Fort Whoop-Up and chose to travel 70 miles south to the Sweetgrass Hills, which was close to the border with the United States. By the time the group arrived in the area on September 21st, many of the men were only wearing rags and were walking barefoot, while more horses had died from the cold and hunger. After getting new supplies, Divisions D and E went back to the east, and Divisions B, C, and F began to travel to Fort Whoopup. On September 19th, several horses with the force died, enough that the troop would name the coulee there Dead Horse Valley. On September 23rd, French and a small group of men arrived at Fort Benton, and after arrest would purchase supplies and take on the scout, Jerry Potts. At this point, French rode east to join troops D and E, while Inspector McLeod would be in charge of the majority of the force currently waiting at the Sweetgrass Hills. They would reach the party on October 4th. And finally, on October 9th, the force reached for Whoop-Up. It's a really an amazing story, and I'm probably going to do a longer episode about it, but it was a terrible, terrible march. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs, like Dr. Peter Henderson Price, giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples are already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime coming this fall. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On July 8th, Marc Girard became the Premier of Manitoba again. He had served as the second Premier of the province from 1871 to 1872, and he would serve again from this day until December 2nd, 1874. One of the biggest moments from this year happened on July 26th when Alexander Graham Bell told his father in Brantford about his invention, which he called the telephone. One year after the Salt II signed Treaty 3, the government would begin negotiations with the Cree, Assiniboine, and Salt II people. Things did not get off to a good start for negotiations. The Assiniboine had trouble choosing a main spokesman, which caused problems for agreeing to the treaty. Another issue was that on September 8th, less than half of the expected Indigenous nations attended the negotiations. 
It was decided to delay the negotiations until September 11th. When that day came, the Cree were ready to negotiate, but Sol 2 wanted to meet the commissioners at their camp rather than the Hudson's Bay Company post. The Sol 2 said that the company had stolen their land in the past and they would not speak freely there. One man named Otaka Onan would say, quote, The company have stolen our land. I heard that at first. I hear it is true. The Queen's messengers never came here, and now I see the soldiers and the settlers and the policemen. I know it is not the Queen's work. Only the company has come. And they are the head. They are the foremost. I do not hold it back. Let this be put to rights. When this is righted, I will answer the other. End quote. The commissioners agreed to move the meeting place, and negotiations resumed on September 13th. Lieutenant Governor Morris would say to the gathered Indigenous nations, quote, I've asked you to meet us here today. We've been asking you for many days to meet us, and this is the first time you've all met us. If it was not my duty, and if the Queen did not wish it, I would not have taken so much trouble to speak to you. End quote. Morris would then speak regarding how he had come a long way to bring a message, and then said, quote, You are the subjects of the Queen, you are her children, and you are only a little band to all the other children. She has children all over the world, and she does right with them all. She cares as much for you as she cares for her white children, and the proof of it is that whenever her name is spoken, her people, whether they be red or white, love her name and are ready to die for it because she is always just and true. End quote. He would add, after speaking of what the Queen has done for the Indigenous, stating, quote, I think I've told you all that the Queen is willing to do for you. It ought to show you that she has thought more about you than you thought about her. End quote. The Saltu did not believe that the federal government had purchased the Hudson Bay Company lands, and they asked that the government limit the activities of the company. Morris told the indigenous that the company had rights that had been left in possession of, and that they could not be interfered with. Negotiations soon broke down for the day, but on September 14th the chiefs came back together ready to negotiate. The indigenous stated they would agree to the same terms as Treaty 3, but they asked for an annual payment of $15 per person, and that their debts to the Hudson Bay Company be cleared. The commissioners refused both requests. Despite these refusals, though, the treaty was signed on September 15, 1874. The area covered by Treaty 4 stretches from the extreme southeast of Alberta through southern Saskatchewan into the extreme west-central part of Manitoba. The largest communities in this area are Medicine Hat, Moose Jaw, and Regina. The Montreal Gazette would report, quote, no little credit is due to Lieutenant Governor Morris for the manner at once firm and kindly in which he overcame the obstinate but not unnatural prejudices of some of the chiefs and other members of the tribes, especially the Saltu. On September 22nd, Sir Charles Eugene de Boucherville became the Premier of Quebec, and he would serve until 1878. In regards to the premiers of Quebec, on my podcast from John to Justin, I'm looking at every single Quebec election in its history throughout September, so be sure to check it out. On October 10th, Roland Fairbairn McWilliams is born. He would serve as the mayor of Peterborough from 1906 to 1910, and would lead the Young Men's Christian Association from 1922 to 1929. In 1940, he was appointed as Lieutenant Governor of Manitoba, a position he would hold until 1953. As a strict follower of temperance, he forbade alcohol being served in Government House, he was also a champion rugby player as a young man and won the Dominion title with the University of Toronto Juniors in 1893. On November 30th, Lucy Maud Montgomery is born in Prince Edward Island. 
She will begin writing a series of novels in 1908, beginning with Anne of Green Gables, which will make her world famous and quite rich. For her work, she will be honored by King George V, named a National Historic Person, have stamps issued in her name, and a park named after her in Toronto, and she's a major part of the Prince Edward Island tourism industry these days. Anne of Green Gables would of course become one of the best-selling books in history, selling millions and millions of copies. What do I like? I like open fires, moonlit nights, chatty letters, rainy days. I like daydreaming. I love this colorful little island of ruby, emerald, and sapphire. Yet often my dark moods come. I'm possessed body and soul by this depression. They say women shouldn't write. Some days I almost give up. But I cannot contain my imagination. I made Anne real. I gave her my love of nature, my love of books, and my childhood dreams. My greatest happiness would be to climb the alpine path and write upon it a woman's humble name. Lucy Maud Montgomery battled depression, rejection, and sexism to become known around the world for Anne of Green Gables and 19 other novels. On December 3rd, after only a few months in place, Mark Girard is replaced by Robert Davis as the Manitoba Premier. Girard had been abandoned by his English ministers and was forced to resign. Davis would serve as the Premier for the next four years, and he would win in the upcoming election. On December 17th, Philip Gertrude Hill and his Liberals won a second consecutive majority in the Nova Scotia election. On that same day, William Lyon Mackenzie King was born in Kitchener. The grandson of William Lyon Mackenzie, whom he was also named after, his grandfather was the first mayor of Toronto, a member of the Legislative Assembly, and a leader in the rebellions of 1837. His mother was born while Mackenzie was in exile because of the rebellion, and she would eventually teach her son that it was his destiny to vindicate his grandfather. As a young man, King would play football, playing for the Berlin High School Boys, who won a championship in 1885. King would attend the University of Toronto along with Arthur Meehan, graduating in 1895. He then went on to study economics at Chicago and Harvard, excelling academically. In all, King earned five degrees, including a BA, an LLB, and an MA at the University of Toronto between 1895 and 1897. He would go on to earn a PhD, becoming the only Prime Minister in Canadian history to have one. In 1901, King would suffer a tragedy when his roommate and best friend, Henry Albert Harper, died saving a woman who fell through the ice of the Ottawa River. King would lead the effort to raise a memorial to his friend, which would result in the Sir Galahad statue on Parliament Hill in 1905. One year later, King published a memoir of his friend called The Secret of Heroism. Around this time, King was active in several matters, including Japanese immigration, railways, and the Industrial Disputes Investigations Act of 1907, that sought to avert strikes through prior conciliation. It was here he showed a good capacity for reconcile industrial disputes, and it would gain him the attention of Sir Wilfred Laurier, the Prime Minister of the time. During this time, King was known to be emotional in nature, quick to make life-altering decisions, although he had the appearance of prudence and modesty to those around him. It was that nature to make quick decisions that would result in him suddenly resigning from the civil service and running for an election to the House of Commons. He did so in the riding of North Waterloo, which was a conservative stronghold, and had been since 1896. Nonetheless, it was his home riding, and that's where he ran. Amazingly, he was elected, and he would serve in the House of Commons as a Liberal, 
eventually earning the post of Minister of Labor in 1911. He would serve as the first Minister of Labor and implemented two acts that would improve the financial situation for millions of Canadian workers. He also called for the implementation of an eight-hour day. That same year, he lost his seat in the 1911 election that saw the Conservatives come back to power. For the next three years, King worked on Liberal Party publicity and continued to attempt to get back into Parliament. In 1917, he ran for the House of Commons again in North York and again lost due to the unpopularity of the Liberals of the time. In the 1911 election, he had lost by only 300 votes. By 1917, he had lost by 1,000. The loss was especially difficult as his mother was on her deathbed during the campaign and she told him to stay on the campaign trail. He did, but she died before he returned, and this would haunt him for the rest of his life. King's personal life was having difficulties by this point, but he was focusing more and more on his family. His sister died in 1915, followed by his father in 1916. His mother became more demanding of his time, and King was devoted to her. With her death, he felt deeply alone, and it's no exaggeration to say that King cared deeply for his mother. On her 74th birthday, it was reported he gave her 74 kisses. In his diary, he would write, quote, I have met no woman so true and lovely a woman in every way as my mother, End quote. He was also devoted to his dogs, three dogs, all named Pat, which he had over the course of his life. While many English-speaking liberals defected to the Union government over the conscription issue, King stayed by Laurier's side. As a result, King was chosen to be the new leader of the Liberal Party after the death of Laurier. King was not coming into the leader's position at a time of strength for the party. The First World War and conscription crisis had deeply divided the party, with some members forming the Union Party with the Conservatives. In addition, the base of the party in the West was losing ground to the new party of the Progressives. In the 1921 election, King and the Liberals won a slim majority, making King the 10th Prime Minister of Canada. To put this in context, by this point he had served only six years in the House of Commons and now had the highest post in the land. King immediately got down to work as the leader of the country, working to regain the confidence of farmers in Ontario and Western Canada who had been hurt by conservative tariff policies and the conscription crisis. He would serve until 1926 when the King-Bing affair erupted and Megan came back into power, and then King came back after a few months. Since I already talked about this earlier in the episode, I won't go into detail here. In 1930, only a few months after the person's case was resolved, King would appoint Corrine Wilson as the first female senator in Canadian history. That same year, he also would increase the powers of provincial governments by transferring the ownership of Crown lands to Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. But the good times did not last for King, nor for many others. With the stock market crash of 1929, the Great Depression would soon begin. King, according to his diary, did not feel that the Depression would impact Canada greatly. As a result, he refused to provide federal funds to provinces that were struggling with rising unemployment. In a quote that would sink him, he would say he would not give a five-cent piece to conservative provincial governments. The opposition quickly used this in the election campaign, which seriously hurt the Liberals nationwide. This would prove disastrous as the Conservatives under R.B. Bennett promised aggressive action. In the 1930 election, the Liberals lost 27 seats falling into the official opposition status, while R.B. Bennett and the Conservatives roared back with 135 seats, 44 more than the last election. As the leader of the opposition, King continued attacking Bennett for not fulfilling his promises and for the rising unemployment problem. And thanks to the dislike of Bennett among the unemployed throughout Canada, the 1935 election was an overwhelming victory for the Liberals, who picked up 83 seats to finish with 171 seats, while the Conservatives collapsed, losing 95 seats to finish with 39.
Now with a strong majority, King would negotiate a new trade agreement with the United States and the United Kingdom. The Great Depression still raged on, causing a rising amount of relief costs and no clear plan to clear up the economy, but luckily for King, the worst of the Depression happened prior to the Liberals returning to power. During his term, he would bring in several Canadian institutions that would change Canada forever as well. In 1936, his government established the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 1937, TransCanada Airlines, which would become Air Canada, was established, followed by the National Film Board of Canada in 1939. In 1939, Britain declared war on Germany, and the Canadian Parliament was recalled in an emergency session and voted to go to war. On September 8, 1939, two days before Canada declared war on Germany, King would say in the House of Commons, quote, I never dreamed that the day would come when, after spending a lifetime in a continuous effort to promote and to preserve peace and goodwill in international as well as in industrial relations, it would fall to my lot to be the one to lead this dominion of Canada into a great war. But the responsibility I assume with a sense of being true to the very blood that is in my veins. I assume it in the defense of freedom, the freedom of my fellow countrymen, the freedom of those whose lives is unprotected in other countries, the freedom of mankind itself." End quote. In 1940, another election was held and King enjoyed an even larger majority, seeing his Liberals rise six seats to 179, while the National Government Party, a new party, formed official opposition with 39 seats. In August of that year, King and President Roosevelt signed an agreement that provided for the close cooperation of Canadian and American forces during the war. With Canada now at war, and with cooperation between government leaders, business leaders, and labor leaders, the Canadian economy and industrial production shifted to the war. Unemployment fell extremely fast, and through industrial expansion and financial arrangements with the United States, Canada's economy began to boom. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the Japanese-Canadian internment process would begin under the government of King. Out of a blue sky on a quiet Sunday afternoon, we in Canada heard that Hitler's Axis partner in the Orient had joined Germany in her effort at world domination. In all particulars, Japan was following the Nazi pattern of aggression by resort increasingly to deception, terrorism, and violence. It was the Blitzkrieg all over again. Today you have heard the infamous conduct of Japan denounced by the President of the United States and by the Prime Minister of Great Britain. You have also learned of the immediate manner in which the Japanese challenge has been met by the governments of each of these countries. I need not repeat what you have already been told by Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill. Canada's action was taken promptly. Yesterday, as soon as I received authoritative information of the outbreak of hostilities, I summoned the Cabinet to meet at 7.30 in the evening. It was at once recognized that Japan's actions were a threat to the defense and freedom of Canada and the other nations of the British Commonwealth. As a result of our deliberation, it was decided that the government of Canada should immediately associate itself with the government of the United Kingdom in hostilities against Japan. In reaching this decision, the cabinet acted upon the authority given at the outbreak of war by the decision of Parliament for effective cooperation by Canada at the side of Britain to resist aggression. Japanese Canadians were viewed as enemy aliens and they would have their property and businesses confiscated 
and then moved to the interior of British Columbia to internment camps or given the choice to go back to Japan. The Japanese Canadians would not become enfranchised citizens again until 1947 and would be barred from entering Canada as new immigrants until the 1960s. In all, 27,000 Japanese Canadians were detained without charge or trial. During the war, King rebuilt the Royal Canadian Air Force as its own separate entity from the Royal Air Force. He also obtained the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan Agreement in December of 1939, which eventually trained half the airmen of Canada, Britain, New Zealand, and Australia during the war. In 1946, King would introduce the Canadian Citizenship Act, which created Canadian citizens and not British subjects. On January 3, 1947, King became the first Canadian citizen with the certificate number 0001. On January 20, 1948, King resigned as Prime Minister and was succeeded by Louis Saint Laurent, who had served for eight years as Prime Minister. Laurent was chosen at the first National Convention of the Liberal Party to be held since 1919. King died on July 22, 1950. Upon his death, the Globe and Mail wrote, quote, Next to Confederation itself, no single factor has been more significant in the shaping of national affairs than the career of Mackenzie King. End quote. Looking back on his life before his death, King would write in his diary, quote, The path to success lies along lines of being true to certain teachings and right activities, integrity, goodwill, initiative, disinterestness versus self-seeking. End quote. On Saturday night, the former Prime Minister of Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie King, died at his summer home outside Ottawa. Blair Fraser, Ottawa editor of Maclean's Magazine, tells of Mr. King as he was known by the reporters of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. One thing in today's papers may have puzzled readers a bit. Ottawa reporters have been telling everybody for years what a recluse Mr. King was, how hard it was to get to see him, how seldom he met the press. And today, every paper that I've seen is full of personal recollections of him, reminiscences of private and even intimate conversations. Well, both reports are honest. The contradiction is more apparent than real. It was hard to see Mr. King. You couldn't manage it casually. He never did what Mr. Saint Laurent did at lunchtime today, wander into the Rideau Club all by himself and sit down at the nearest table. You saw Mr. King by appointment, and rarely. But you did see him, if you wanted to, and had a purpose in it. Except for his old friend, Senator Charlie Bishop, Mr. King had no intimates among reporters here, but he would on occasion give a reporter a private interview. We've all had them at one time or another. And in those off-the-record interviews, he'd talk with amazing frankness. Maybe that was why the interviews themselves were so memorable. We were so used to his Hansard style, the ponderous prose, the elaborate networks of qualification and reservation. Well, in private, he'd say the same thing in substance, but he'd say it briefly and sharply and very often wittily. The other thing that made him memorable was personal charm. In public, he was cold and remote, a little inhuman. But face to face, he could make you feel that you were the one person in Canada he really wanted to see, that any remarks he made were for your ears only. You came away remembering a firm handshake, a warm smile, a remarkably clear, alert eye, and a tremendous impression of vigor, both physical and intellectual. In Ottawa today, there are not many mourners in the deep and true sense. Most of Mr. King's immediate family and many of his dearest friends are already dead. But the secondary mourners are legion. Not merely dozens, but hundreds in this city feel this is in some degree a personal loss. That they had some personal bond, something akin to friendship, with the greatest Canadian of his time. 
This is Blair Fraser reporting News Roundup from Ottawa. On the same day that a future Prime Minister was born, when she talked about a great length and the new Premier was elected in Nova Scotia, Hiram Blanchard would pass away. He had served as the first Premier of Nova Scotia, serving from July 4, 1867 to September 30, 1867. At the time of his death, he was serving as the leader of the opposition. And lastly, this year, the Northwest Territories banned the sale of alcohol, the same year that the Women's Christian Temperance Union was formed. The Northwest Territories would keep the ban in place until 1891. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at 1874. It was a long one because a lot happened this year. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, of course, we're looking at 1875. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Martin Strache, Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.